Welcome listeners to the First Things podcast from the editor's desk. I'm Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, and I'm joined today by Nathan Kankuski, and we're going to talk about France's most controversial man, Eric Zemmour. Nathan, you wrote this piece in summer of 2021, suggesting that um, Zemmour at a media personality was perhaps poised to run for top office in France. And now we know as of yesterday or the day before yesterday that indeed he has thrown his hat into the ring. Yes, indeed. Uh, So thanks for having me on the show. And I'm glad to discuss this. So this is uh, not without, um, not without uh, historical precedent for a a literary man, for an intellectual to go into politics. Um, Victor Hugo, uh, Lamartine would be two 19th century examples. The question is, I think, can one pull this off in the 21st century? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Let's talk then about his profile, so to speak. Uh, One thing that struck me in your piece is that he sort of made a name for himself, I think it would be fair to say, he made a name for himself as a, a vociferous opponent of 1968, which is in the French political and social imagination, the great watershed year. To talk about the 68ers is to speak of the baby boom generation that finally, for the first time, brought France uh, you know, to truly honor her founding principles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so this is exactly it. And he sort of summarizes their project as an exercise in uh, deconstruction, uh, derision, and, uh, and destruction. Um, and um, and the, what, uh, what's really clear about it and, and what really made him, I think, the, one of the prominent uh, figures is just that he pulled no punches in dealing with, with, uh, with what that generation did and the way they, they dramatically transformed the French landscape and, and uh, transformed the, the nature of, of the Republican regime. I think that's a key theme um, in Zemmour's uh, uh, campaign. What does it take to get us back to the Republic as it was supposed to be set up by uh, General de Gaulle? Uh, what, what is the Fifth Republic supposed to be and what are the requirements to try to um, get to that. I think though what's what's also interesting to note in this uh, in in the way he describes this uh th- th- this generation um is there uh, one is is there kind of hubris that they could break from the past um the the sense that there this was a new moment in French history and it was going to be uh, uh, it, there would be no need to think about what France was with with a prior reference uh, and that um that kind of uh, that belief that maybe history once had a tragic meaning, but it will no longer be tragic, is very much uh, something that he tries to uh, to call them out for. And, uh, and and the way to counter that, of course, is by having a superior knowledge of of history by showing that these efforts to try to rupture, uh, to break from the past, end up having their own historical uh, cycle that they fall back into. And you have the irony of many late twentieth century. Um, uh, developments end up repeating things in the past. So one example uh, that Zimmel was fond of drawing attention to uh, has to do with the the accelerated power that judges received in the French system, which uh, took off in the 70s uh, and then sort of developed exponentially after that. 
and was greeted much like in other jurisdictions with a lot of fanfare about how we're moving into what's called in in in, uh, in France l'état de droit, which is sort of like uh, the, the the state that is based on on the, the rights of man and of the citizen, the states that the state that's based on human rights, where the judges have the power to decide what this is. Um, he he says that the way that this weakens the other branches of government, the executive branch and legislative branch, has a clear parallel in the late night, late sorry late eighteenth century when the monarchs uh, are trying to reform the country, and every time they do so, they run against the power of the of the parlement, which in that time was a juridical body. So every time the monarchs uh, would try to fix and reform the country, they couldn't get anywhere because of the judges. And that's a little bit of the malaise uh, uh, française in the in the 90s and 2000s, uh, which um, I'm not quite old enough to remember, but, um, but I'm sure you uh, would recall some vivid examples of this in the 90s and 2000s. It's kind of became a trope that every French president came into office with these grand ambitions to change this and change that. And every time they'd run against some juridical legal obstacle on, and, and things would just fall apart. This is a kind of a theme in his public um, persona, right? He's a populist, I think it's fair to say. And the populism is often in the press, I think, identified with opposition to mass migration and criticisms of the conceit of a multicultural nation. But I th- what I found um, helpful in your article and also in other things you've written about French politics is that there's a deeper sense, and you just spoke to it here about uh, judicial supremacy, that this represents a elite-dominated political culture. Um, I mean, the judiciary is our own system of government. The founders recognized that the judiciary was the the most um, the most um, you know it's it's the most elite dimension of uh, our 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 political system, and so this seems to be a, a real constant theme for him, right? Which is the voice of the people, not uh, the globalist elite who whom he derides, um, and. It just, I, I gather, really infuriates the ruling opinion in France to be called out uh, by him on, on these things. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, uh, there's, a, there's one in part that's especially infuriating. Uh, and, and this comes up throughout his writings, where he takes this, this generation to task uh, who think of themselves as, as leftists. They think of themselves as using the language of the left, have really mastered it. Um, but in fact, what they did is they substituted one bourgeoisie with another bourgeoisie. Uh, they, they took the old conservative bourgeoisie, the, the kind that was very supportive, say, of De Gaulle, the one that really gave him his, his uh, majorities and base of support. And they've replaced it with this kind of libertarian, uh, uh, um, liberal um, bourgeoisie, um, which is obsessed with individual freedom. And here, I think what's important for, for, for what he's trying to draw attention to is that this, these people uh, thought of themselves and think of themselves as revolutionaries, uh, liberating the, the country, uh, liberating uh, their own individual volition. And uh, what do they do? They end up submitting France and, and submitting the, the French government to a new uh, imperial order, uh, the, the European order and, and the way that, that decisions are addressing uh, the nation are taken in Brussels. Um, on a more geopolitical level, the way decisions are taken in um in Washington that that bear on 
on on French national security. So uh, it's it's a it's not just a charge of hypocrisy um, about the elite, which is is common in our discourse. Uh, I think the way to take it to the next level is to talk about the kind of social transformation one bourgeoisie replaced by another and recognizing that that came with a different um, ethos we he refers in in one of his books um how we started off with marx but we ended up with Pareto with these people that, that that's <laughs> the way that, that their their project uh, rolled out we started off with a kind of uh trotskyism anti-imperialism and yet here we are where all our decisions are made in brussels and washington that address us and we're supposed to celebrate this and think this is such a great thing i think most americans are not aware of how far-reaching there uh, a growing resentment of the importation of American political tropes into France and, well, European, the, throughout the West. Um, I guess uh, Macron denounced um, uh, aspects of uh, Black Lives Matter as a form of American imperialism, and Zemmour even more so, it seems. Yeah, and I think that's been a, a trend of his for, for a long time. Um, he's He's uh, he's drawn a lot of parallels to that uh, in in earlier writings. Um, one aspect that isn't touched on that much, so that we can talk about contemporary political correctness. But one aspect, and this is this is uh, was one of his first uh, books that made a splash, um, uh, called uh, Le Premier Sex, um, the kind of a play on Simone de Beauvoir's title about the second sex, the first sex. He's talking about men, and he sees the importation of American ideas uh, and American feminism as being particularly pernicious to to men. So he's you know, long before we get uh, American conservatives like, um, say, Holly giving speeches uh, talking about manliness. Uh, he was doing that in the in the early two thousands. Uh, giving those kinds of addresses and warning against the, the way that this kind of uh, feminism that fetishized professional single life um, above all else um, was uh, was undermining and weakening the the social national fabric. Now he he does very well. He writes history books, and they're very successful. I gather commercially very successful. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it seems as though the French political life. As much as American, I guess it's, it's characteristic of every uh, political culture, turns on intense debates about crucial moments in the nation's history. Um, where I guess suppose the 1619 project here in America is really meant to be open up, uh, um, to, to flip our understanding of 1776. But it seems in the French context and Zemmour's own role as a polemicist, it's really Napoleon, the Dreyfus affair, and Vichy are kind of three touchstones where he takes heterodox positions. What, what what's at stake in arguments about Napoleon? <laughs> well, I think this goes to a lot of his uh, his intellectual sources that aren't always um, explicit, but he cites from time to time. Um, I'm thinking here Samuel Huntington, um, Carl Schmitt, uh, René Girard is also important. Um, what Napoleon represents to him uh, and why he's pro-Napoleonic in a way that sides with the, with the revolutionary and with the left, uh, you know, to, be, to be a man of the French right in the traditional sense is to be against Bonaparte. You won't even say Napoleon, right? You'll say Bonaparte um, because mm. he's the usurper. 
Um, but to be like he is, pro-Napoleon, is to talk about Napoleon as someone who offered a different kind of civilizational order, uh, one that was opposed to uh, the kind of civilizational order um, that came out, say, uh, from, from England. Um, so here it's really, he sees this as, a, as sort of a... a an early example of the, the globalization debate, more or less. Uh, what is it? What role should the state have vis-a-vis the economy? What are the concerns about the economy or, say, corporations or aspects of the economy running out of control and taking uh, political power um, that they hold over the, over the nation, over, over the government? And he sees Napoleon as, as uh, the figure who offered a different alternative from the way that globalization ended up developing under the, in the, the English and then later the American order. So it's quite a, it's, you know, on, on the one hand, we can think of it as his support for Napoleon just being like, well, he's, he's, he's our guy. He's a French, he's, he's a right. Frenchman and he wins he victory. So, <laughs> so this is good. We like, we like our guy cause he wins, but uh, the more, the more subtle uh, reading is to connect it with those, with those sources and see uh, like say Schmidt um, and see it as this kind of, a different geopolitical arrangement that could have taken place, uh, but uh, but didn't, uh, but lost out um, vis-a-vis the the kind of um, English version of of globalization. It seems uh, like that's a this is a long term twentieth century uh, debate about you know Anglo American liberal commercial culture versus uh, continental European. Certainly in Germany, this was a you mentioned Carl Schmitt, and that's certainly one of his one of his bugbears. And there are many folks on the continent who felt that that this way of organizing human affairs was, in the end, soulless and uh, lacking in the metaphysical density that is necessary to give civic life its its true meaning and purpose, and and also lacking the ability to forge a, a genuine unity. I often think that, you know, England, island nation doesn't have to worry so much about um, forging a nation. It's kind of a given. But the nations on the continent of Europe are, are always kind of, if you will, in process. <laughs> and you have to have some center of gravity to make France France. It's not yeah. Automatic. And 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 I think just the risk of invasion is much is much is much greater. So the kind of um, the, the more existential side of, of geopolitics uh, is much more pressing than it is for uh, for the British, um, and that's and that's the, the part of the, the distinction between land and sea that uh, that Schmidt talks about. Um, the the fact that you have geo geopolitical order oriented by land is going to have different concerns than that ordered by sea. And the land, yeah, if we update to the twenty first century, and um, invasion, he speaks of immigration as a kind of invasion. Uh, it's very traumatic and inflammatory language, but but it's a from a political philosophical perspective. There's this question that of how it is that one can maintain sort of national coherence in the in the face of dramatic demographic change. I mean that just strikes me. And one of the things that's so exasperating is that we live in a the 68ers, so to speak, just simply assert as a matter of doctrine that you can have a multicultural society and that that's somehow better uh, than than one that's culturally unified, a monoculture, or at least a, a highly concentrated culture. And Zemmour seems to be um, 
such a provocateur because he actually raises in an explicit way what many people intuitively feel like, whoa, there, there are limits here as to how much demographic change we can endure and still actually build, be the self-same country. Yeah, and I think it also goes to what you understand to be uh, the basis of uh, of a people, what you understand it to be the basis of civilization. And here, the English, um, the English continental divide uh, is worth playing out in this sense that if you emphasize a system of social contract for understanding what what makes a people people, what gives a civilization its particular order, then you're going to be talking about um, individual will. You're going to be talking about alignment of that. And it's very easy to say, well, if you just have another person come in here or 100 people come in or 10 million people come in, um, then we just form a, a, a new social contract. I mean, there's there's problems, of course, with that uh, way of thinking. Why is it we have to revisit the social contract so often? Maybe that's a reason to slow it all down. Um, but that's that's the paradigm that, that you get if you follow uh, a kind of social contract way of thinking. The other paradigm, and the one that I think resonates quite a bit on the on the continent, is to be a to be part of a people is to share in a particular history, um, to learn that history, to learn that culture, um, and to be able to hand it down from one generation to the next, to have received it from one generation to the next. And that's a much more corporate understanding of what a people is. Um, and it, it, there's certainly you can you can have you can be open to newcomers, you can have new uh, people coming in, but the threshold for um, threshold for bringing them in um, is going to be much, much lower. And this is, again, where the, the geopolitical situation, I think, is, is just worth noting on the, on the demographic question, um, be, that the being in the Mediterranean, being next to a very f- a rapid growing continent uh, that uh, is, will probably have about four times as many people as Europe has um, over the course of the next uh, hundred years, and that's the, the sort of standard prediction. Um, for how fast that's going to develop, um, is going to place immense pressures on what you think your your state is going to be doing and what you think your your sense of the people and the nation is. So he's he's raising all those all those questions, and this is the this is the the concept the identitarian language that he uses is key to his campaign in the sense that uh, we have to be able to preserve and transmit uh, 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 identity. Um, and that's the priority. It's more important than questions of sovereignty. It's more important than questions of, of economics or what we, what we teach in, in uh, or how we run our schools and, and these sorts of more policy debates. The fundamental issue is is the is is an existential one. It's about identity, national identity, ensuring that that it goes from one generation to the next. It's interesting that the New York Times today has a opinion piece really attacking some more. The title of the piece is The New Face of French Bigotry. So bigotry, racism, and then the inevitable adjective far right. So let's think about that. I mean, as you point out, to be a a fan of Napoleon is to be left in a certain sense, historically, in in the French political imagination. Um, but it, it seems inevitable that our journalistic class will describe anyone with identitarian interests as far right. So it seems as though right and left was, at least in the industrial era, you know, the defining characteristic or defining issues that would separate right from left had to do with how we organize economic relations, the relation of labor and capital. 
Um, but it seems in the postmodern or post-industrial environment, the key dividing line really has to do with this cultural question. Um, and that you are left wing if you if you think that, I don't know, that that we don't have to have these strong identitarian roots. Um, and you're right wing if you think we do. Um, and I think that makes some sense. I mean, historically, you could say conservatism is the party of authority and the left is the party of, of the new, the authority of the past and the left is the party of the new future. Um, whether it's liberal, commercial, 19th century liberalism or whether it's 20th century Marxism, they're both, they're both parties of the new future. Um, and so Zamora is right in that sense. You know, there's no future worth having unless it's, and you could tell from his speech and he announces his candidacy, this litany of the great figures of French culture. And the message is we can have no future unless we are firmly rooted in our noble past. So, um, but it, it is a sort of um, interesting that he, he is very fierce in his denunciation of the mainstream political leaders in France. But the heir to the collectivist left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is that, is, that, is, that, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, Mélenchon. He doesn't get um, criticized by Zimbabwe. So it's odd. His allies, or at least the, who, the people whom he hopes are his allies, are the Le Pen, the, the national rally, and the the what's left of the communist left. France Insoumise, yeah. The the party of Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And well, I think just to speak of the dynamic that you're describing, I think it's important to see that the, um, that a lot of that is a shift at the elite level. This and this is the the sense that um, what we really now have is the a, a position between the the kind of of, of rootedness um, w- would be a position associated with the kind of classical right in the in the old sense, the kind of the 1789 sense. And then the other position that's now becoming the left is effectively the liberal position. And so what's dropped out of the radar or, or dropped out of this picture, what's dropped off the radar is the is the the old left, um, people who took popular sovereignty seriously, who saw the, the, the task of government to be representative of the people as a whole, particularly the working classes that would not be represented in the, in the bourgeois liberal system. And that that as, as an elite position, that that uh, that's dropped out in many places, almost almost vanished. Um, but we still have it there resonating at uh, the popular level. Um, I, I think there's a key there's there's a few key examples of this in in the French context which are just worth um, worth raising. So let's take polls on uh, this concept of the great replacement, uh, which is supposed to uh, be a concept that doesn't refer to a conspiracy that something was was developed sometime in the sixties and seventies. You know, a small group of people got together and said, "Ah, let's change the whole dynamic of the country." It doesn't refer to that. It refers to the, the demographic change and the and the kind of the the political social questions that that demographic change places on on Europe. Um, so if you ask people, are you concerned about the Great Replacement in in France? Um, now, already from the North American point of view, this question sounds you know, crazy extremist, but 67% of French say they're anxious about the Great Replacement. This is from late October. Mm. Uh, so just, just a month ago, 
over just over a month ago. 67% are anxious about it. 61% believe it is going to take place. Now you might look at this and say, okay, this is just an example of the of uh, these kind of hard right the segment of the population. But then you go to Mélenchon's party and you ask the people who sympathize with his party, either they're members or supporters. And what's the percentage? The percentage is um, is forty two percent. In forty two percent of that uh, of people who are characterized of the hard left, right, that they back the hard left candidate, uh, are concerned about that concept, the Great Replacement. This is something that I think the New York Times columnist, your kind of your and your average uh, your average sort of um, Anglo liberal elite has no conception of these people shouldn't exist. Yes. They, they, how do you how do you think about that? I'll give another example um, that uh, just by way of a quick anecdote. The I, I, I once met someone who was studying at an elite university. She was French uh, in elite university in the U.S. on a kind of a year abroad, so already a certain level of demographic. And she said, "Oh yeah, you know, at home I'm Mélenchon. I love Mélenchon. Mélenchon is the greatest." Uh, but then she said. Uh, but the Democrats here in this country, they're all obsessed with multiculturalism. So I'm pro-Trump. <laughs> and the fact that she that she was saying that in an, in an elite institution um, that where she knew, obviously, that saying that was was a way to anathemize herself socially. Uh, but that was just the, the position that she had is, again, example, people like this, <clears throat> people like this should not exist, according to the Anglo liberal worldview. They have no capacity to understand it, no capacity to make these kinds of people intelligible. But they're there and they represent a, a very significant percentage of the population. And that's why uh, Zemmour uh, thinks that he can run a campaign um, based on prioritizing the identity question on ending mass immigration and find support from people who still take the concept of popular sovereignty um, as it was understood by the by the old left, where you have you give supremacy to the popular assemblies. These are the one, people who should hold power. These are the institutions that should be supreme, that should be sovereign, not the courts, uh, not a, a cadre of elite judges making the decision, whether it's in France or Strasbourg or, or Brussels. Um, th- those people shouldn't have the, the real power. Real power belongs with the representative institutions that actually represent the people as a whole. Has Marine Le Pen withdrawn or has she indicated that she's not going to contest in in this coming first round oh no she'll 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 be she'll be running yeah and a, i mean it's possible something might happen but you know this is the real i think the the, the it's something we should be following to see how this race plays out is will um marine le pen who's who's um a kinder gentler Right, she's right. Worked, she's kind of very gentler, hard to mainstream herself. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, and and that's partly the the paradox I think that that we see is is you know she she's been accused of being a populist for some time, and there's something to be said for that. But her her supporters, people who who voted for her in the past, they they don't really trust her. They think that she's in it to win rather than to represent a set of ideas. And there's a fascinating exchange. Um, that uh, Zemmour records in his in his latest book, the La France n'est pas dit son dernier mot. France has not said its last word. Um, right at the start, which I'll, I'll just draw attention to quickly because I think it captures the the dynamic of this of this uh, race and the way that these two are going to fight each other. Um, th- so Zemmour says that he had this meeting with Madame Le Pen, and she said, "Please don't run. You're just going to get three um, percent and prevent me from arriving first. You're going to harm our kind of." 
our, our coalition of, of patriots who's just going to divide the right even further. And you know, it's a fair point. Is Zemmour's candidacy just going to divide the French right, notorious for its divisions, um, even further? And uh, they kind of have a, a back and forth. Um, and uh, Marine Le Pen says, you know, the French people, they're, they're, they're afraid. Um, we have to, uh, you, you can't be too divisive. You got to, you got to look to moderate yourself. And Zemmour strikes back and says, you're, you're mixed up about what time we're living in. We're not, no longer in 1988. We don't win by going toward the center, uh, by, by moderating our position. There's a need for uh, firmness and conviction, and even for radicalness. And then she says, uh, you're an ideologue. Uh, in politics, you have to like persons, like people, and so forth. Um, and then he, he strikes back and, and says, no, no, what I do is I do the battle of ideas. And that's what people are looking for, the battle of ideas. So this is the question. Which, who's right? Is, is Marine Le Pen right? You've got to make yourself more centrist over time. Or is uh, Zemmour right? That there's a, this demand for someone who is completely uh, focused on a campaign of conviction, a campaign fought in a battle of ideas. And, uh, and that's what will, what will attract uh, voters. I think in a settled political consensus, the centrism clearly is the path to political success. But when a political consensus is disintegrating and voters are aware that they're, they're now voting for what kind of country they're going to have and not how, the, how things are going to be allocated within the country that everybody agrees on, um, then it is, Zamora is probably right. What, 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 uh, is it possible to win? Uh, and even if he can win, is it possible to govern? <laughs> so it's possible to win, but I think the, the thing to watch out for is, uh, is, is how this dynamic plays out um, between the various right-wing factions. France's right is divided. Um, can you get enough people to support one single candidate? And it's, it's an open question as to how that'll, that'll play out. You need something to make it to the second round. It's a two-round system. To make it to the second round, you've got to be shooting to get you know, over 20%. Uh, and Macron certainly has that right now, so, so uh, he's safe. But how the kind of 40 to 50% of the, uh, the French population that vote uh, to the right, um, it's a fairly conservative country, after all, uh, something we forget. You know, 40 uh, to 50% of the population um, vote usually for a conservative uh, right-wing candidate. Um, Zemmour certainly fits in that group, but can he get enough of those people to rally to him? That's the the first question, I think. And then government is is of course an even more complicated. He's running one. against uh, the ruling class, and of course, well, exactly, when the ruling exactly. class rules, and so therefore you can be a titular boss, uh, but not actually be able to get anybody to do what you want them to do. And they just, as you pointed out, they block you through procedures and bureaucratic obfuscation and legal legal maneuvers and all that sort of thing. And there are many tools to do that in the French system, even more so than in the American one. So the there's really going to be, I mean, the, the signature issue of the campaign is to have an immediate referendum on, on immigration. Now, what does that mean in the French juridical context? Well, it's invoking uh, Article 11 of the Constitution that you can call a referendum and it's not going to be subject to judicial review. So this is the way to get around mm -hmm. it, to, because the judges historically have, and, and constitutionally have said we're not going to oppose ourselves to the will of the people. Um, that's the that's the precedent. But is is the court going to follow that? Or are they going to invent something new? Uh, I mean, this is we've seen this example in Britain with, uh, say, Miller Number no. Two, um, that case with prerogative, where they said 
oh, by the way, we decide we have, uh, we, this is a judicial, judicial question. This is something we're going to subject to judicial review and we strike it down, <laughs> more or less pronouncing an end to uh, parliamentary sovereignty as it's understood. It, the, the French context is wide open to this. So they're going to have to have a lot of cards on the table uh, and, and really, um, really uh, have the courage to pursue mm. constitutional reform if they're going to govern at all. Otherwise, they'll just be floundering um, around. And we could discuss more of the, of, the, of the obstacles and challenges, but I think that's, that's the big one. In, there's a complaint in the American context about the deep state, of course, but in the, in the French context, you, know, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> it just, just in the past, it's just worth noting that uh, the video has already been censored by YouTube in the sense that you need to be over 18 to watch it and you have to have a YouTube account. This is a campaign announcement <laughs> video. Wow. So th- there will be there'll be many more tricks like this to try to uh, weaken his his, uh, his appeal. Well, thank you, Nathan, for giving your time here and discussing France's most controversial man and now controversial candidate. Thanks for being on the thank podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Here.